nation's capital. This is D.C. Public Safety. I'm your host, Leonard Sipes. Ladies and gentlemen, the show title today is Change in Juvenile Justice, and we have a national expert by our microphones. We have Jake Hurwitz. Jake is the policy director for the Public Safety Performance Project at the Pew Charitable Trust. Before joining Pew, Jake worked for the National Institute of Justice, which is the principal research arm of the U.S. Department of Justice. He was at the House of Representatives and the Eckerd Youth Alternatives Organization. Jake, welcome to D.C. Public Safety. Pleasure to be here with you. All right. Juvenile justice. You know, one of the things that I figured out, Jake, is that a lot of us who are in the adult system really don't have a clear understanding of the juvenile justice system. But before getting onto that explanation, give me a sense as to what Pew is doing and what you're doing to advance the cause of change in juvenile justice. The Pew Charitable Trust is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that brings the best research to bear on today's most challenging problems. Uh, that's applied in our public safety performance project where we assist states that want to take a fresh look at their sentencing and correction system uh, and choose data-driven, fiscally sound um, sentencing and corrections policies in both the criminal and juvenile justice systems that can protect public safety, hold offenders offenders accountable and contain corrections costs. You know, Pew has been at the forefront of change in the adult and juvenile criminal justice system. I mean, that needs to be set up front. Well, we, we've had a good uh, run of it right now. We're about 10 years into our public safety performance project. We started out as a pretty modest uh, initiative looking to uh, bring together policymakers from across the country who are working on these issues, bring new research to bear, and also provide direct technical assistance to state leaders who, as I mentioned, want to take a fresh look at these issues. And we also hit at a key time. Um, uh, states were spending about $50 billion a year mm-hmm. on adult prisons. They were getting returns that they didn't like. Recidivism rates were stubbornly high. Um, but crime was really low. Mm-hmm. Uh, crime had been falling since the early to mid-90s. And so there, it was a key moment, almost an inflection point in an in American's consideration of uh, sentencing and corrections issues. Uh, and that uh, has um, certainly been motivated as much on the juvenile side as on the adult side of the ledger. I keep setting up questions and then deferring to other questions. But before getting on to the change in juvenile justice, which has been remarkable, there's been, in my sense, a lot more change in juvenile justice in, than the adult system. But in essence, give me a layman's explanation as to what the juvenile justice system is, because people are confused. Even those of us in the adult system, we don't quite understand that the juvenile justice system is there for the best interest of the child, not like in the adult system, accountability and punishment. So there's a bunch of ways to break this down. You're absolutely right that um, uh, American criminal justice is a fractured system. You've got 50 state systems. You've got thousands of county systems with their own jails. You have district attorneys and judges and defense attorneys working at the the local and uh, county and state level. Uh, You've got a federal system. You have D.C.'s um, um, bifurcated and complex system that we were discussing earlier before the show. Um, But you're absolutely right. One of the ways to break down the system is between adults and juveniles. And so Mm -hmm. every state sets its own um, age of jurisdiction that that demarcates uh, which uh, at what age um, people are processed either as a juvenile in the juvenile system or adult in the adult system and in, under what conditions they can be transferred. So there's actually fluidity between the systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reasons, as you pointed out, is that overall the, the motivation for a separate juvenile justice system in this country uh, comes from the understanding that kids are less culpable. Um, they're cognitively less developed. They're emotionally less developed. They're much more a product of their environment uh, than adults. Uh, and because of all that, these are all seen as partially mitigating circumstances uh, in a sense, uh, not a legal sense, but in a, in a, in a, in a moral and ethical and 
uh, and, and how the system chooses to, to respond to uh, delinquent or criminal behavior. Uh, and I wouldn't say it's so much that there's not, it's not about accountability. But mm-hmm. you're absolutely right that many states actually have in uh, statute statements that the decision shall be in the best interest of the youth. And so the idea is that uh, the first response to juvenile crime should not be one of punishment, but asking the question, what can we do at this point to reduce recidivism, to maximize public safety, um, and to hold juveniles accountable. So very few states or state policymakers ever say this is not about accountability. Well, I probably mischose my words, but the point is, is that if you have a system that is predicated to be in the best interest of the child, uh, there's going to be a different reaction than if you have the person at 15 and that person is tied up in the three or four burglaries. The reaction to that individual is going to be different in the juvenile justice system versus three or four burglaries done by a 25-year-old in the adult system. I think that's accurate. And another thing we see happening right now is some of that thinking. And let me just characterize that thinking. The the question we're we're trying to answer is not how do we show we're tough on crime or that we are um, uh, holding people accountable. The question is, what is the best use of our resources right now to maximize public safety? Mm -hmm. And that thinking has always been on the juvenile side of the ledger. And now it's actually starting to seep into the adult criminal justice system. And that's interesting because the fundamental change we go, that segues nicely into the next question. The juvenile justice system, in essence, here's my layman-esque view of the juvenile justice system. 10, 15 years ago, it probably wasn't hugely different from the adult system. Um, You had institutions, you had not prisons, but you had institutions that were there, again, for the best interest of the child. But you still locked up a tremendous amount of people who were caught up in the juvenile justice system. They may have gotten treatment that you don't get in the adult system, mental health or substance abuse. But in essence, they were it was institutional-based. And the bulk of individuals went into those institutions, filtered into juvenile justice's form of, of parole and probation. That has dramatically changed, correct? The What states are doing in terms of putting people into I don't want to call them prisons, institutions. Mm-hmm. The reliance upon facilities and placing juveniles into those facilities has lessened tremendously over the course of the last 15 years, correct? You're absolutely right. So let's go back even a little further. So in the approach to the mid-90s, let's say, crime was on the upswing in this country. Yes. Uh, there was massive growth in the um, number of facilities, the number of people in facilities, uh, and the overall incarceration. And on the juvenile side, we refer to it as a commitment rate. Mm-hmm. And so those went uh, upward quickly in that period of time. What's happened uh, since about the millennium is fascinating. And here's where the two systems really diverge. Mm-hmm. On both the adult and juvenile side of the ledgers, crime rates, violent crime rates have plummeted. So if you look at the period 2001 to 2012, juvenile cr- violent crime during that period fell 42%. Wow. That's massive. Yes. If in any other area of major policy in this country, Correct. that would be heralded as, a, as a almost unprecedented shift uh, right. in public safety. That's right. <clears throat> Here's where things differ a little bit. At the same period of time, actually it's a little different time frame because of, of the different data sources, but mm-hmm. from 2001 to 2013, the juvenile commitment rate fell 53%. 53. So the juvenile commitment, juveniles going to institutions, we're not calling them prisons, juveniles going to institutions decreased 53%. That's right. Where on the adult side, it's increased. It's essentially, yeah, it, 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 
the Delta is a little more complex. It, it grew till about 2007, 2008, and then it started falling. But it fell much less than on the juvenile side, despite the fact that crime fell in, in almost in lockstep. But the, the declines in the adult system have been minuscule. They've, they've been, been very modest. They've been yeah. very modest. Yeah, we're talking 1% or 2%. Okay. When you're talking about a 53%, 53% reduction in juveniles being put into institutions versus the adult system where the declines have been very modest. That there's a huge difference. Right. And let me just qualify sorry, as I said one or two percent. What it actually is is that one or two percent per year reduction for the past four or five years in adult incarceration, that adds up to about a ten percent reduction in the adult incarceration rate since two thousand seven. So it's nothing to sneeze at, but it is not on the level of fifty three percent we saw on the juvenile side. Right. And the really here, here here's the way I think state policymakers in particular are framing this because juvenile justice even more so then the adult criminal justice system is a state focus because there's almost no federal presence mm-hmm. on juvenile justice in this country in terms of uh, the, the um, uh, court adjudication and disposition of juvenile right. cases. But here's, I think, the, the takeaway as state policymakers look at that. What they're saying is juvenile crime is clearly a cost, right? It has victims. It uh, is bad for communities. It is harmful to families. Mm-hmm. We, we know that. They're also saying juvenile commitment, the placement of kids – taking them from their families and putting them in residential facilities, whether or not those are group homes or industrial uh, homes or boot camps or you know, wilderness residential programs, is also a huge cost. Mm-hmm. Um, they, this involves taxpayer costs. You're separating kids from their families. Um, and so what's happened here is what's really fascinating, the thing that that's, is really drawing state policymakers to it is saying – We've achieved both a massive reduction in the costs associated with juvenile crime and a massive reduction in the costs associated with the commitment of juveniles to out-of-home residential facilities. Mm-hmm. And why? Why, why, why has it happened? Why has that happened? Why have we been able to achieve that kind of reduction on the juvenile justice side where the, on the adult side it's been a lot less than that? I mean, in essence, what we are saying is, is that we are going to do, quote, quote something else. With a 16-year-old, we're going to do something else besides putting that person in, a, in some sort of institution. Right. Where in the adult side, we, we basically haven't made that decision as of yet, or the gains have been, or the reductions have been far more modest. Why did it happen in the juvenile justice system, and why hasn't it happened in the adult system? Yeah, so there's two parts to this equation, I think. And, and let me you know, preface all this by saying that this is, you see different stories from states to state. Uh, and so it's not necessarily one national story, but I'm going to sort of characterize what we see when we look at the data in, in across the nation. Mm-hmm. There's two things that could be driving this reduction in the in the let's call it the out of home or incarcerated population. Right. The first is overall crime rates. If there are fewer kids, uh, juveniles uh, committing crimes, it's going to be fewer uh, referrals to court fewer referrals into the juvenile justice system from schools. You have fewer cases, fewer adjudications, fewer dispositions, etc. This is a funnel that you can see almost narrowing at at its widest point. Um, On the juvenile side, that has to be part of the equation. Part of the reason that juvenile commitment has declined is because there are fewer juvenile crimes. But per, there are, per capita. But uh, we just talked about there are fewer adult crimes. That's right. So that's only a partial explanation. So it's happening, it's happening concurrently. That's right. So I'm, I'm trying to explain why the juvenile committed population yes. has gone down. So part of it is the crime reduction. And the other part are the policy decisions. And so when you look into some of these states, what you'll see is a decrease in admissions to juvenile uh, facilities, but an increase in length of stay. Ah. And so policy plays a, a role. And sometimes that policy role can actually swamp the reduction in crime. Mm-hmm. So what we see on the juvenile side is is definitely reduced commitments from reduced crime. 
some policy choices. Clear, a bunch of states have been doing reforms for long, more than a decade, right. and so that also has to have an effect. But we also see some policy choices that run counter to that, that actually maybe mean the, the population didn't decline as fast as it otherwise would have, mm-hmm. but for policy decisions made mm-hmm. by uh, leaders of states. Now, the question is, okay, I think a great question, why, why hasn't the adult system done this? I think a couple reasons. One is that the juvenile system, by its nature, is time-limited. Mm-hmm. You can only be a juvenile for so long, right. and every state sets that in statute. Right. And so the juvenile system, as crime comes down, the juvenile system, in its essence, clears very quickly because okay. you can only be in a juvenile facility for a, a limited number of years. Good point. Whereas on the adult side, we have some sentences. Now, this is not – there's a lot of variation from state to state and across crime type, but there, it's not uncommon to co- come across cases of 5, 10, 15, 20, 25-year sentences mm-hmm. in the states. There's nothing like that on the juvenile side. Right. So once the crime rate starts going down, you don't have the stacking effect of all those long sentences, which we do see mm-hmm. uh, on the adult side of the ledger. But, uh, but, uh, but there, again, there's a 53% reduction in the use of some sort of out-of-home placement, as you put it. Other people would say institutionalization. Other people would say prison. Um, There's a dramatic reduction that hasn't happened in the adult system. Pew is looking at this from the adult system and the juvenile justice system between you and and Adam Gelb, who has been before these microphones before. Pew has been working on this systematically, working with states, working with local jurisdictions to analyze the criminal justice systems and to come up with alternatives and to help them implement those alternatives. So I know you and Adam Gelb and the staff at POF sat down and say, gee, how come we're able to accomplish such big changes on the juvenile justice side and modest changes on the adult side? I think um, part of it I alluded to, I think part of it is a length of state discussion. But really the big umbrella over this is policy decisions. That's what I thought. And so um, it, it's really – it's not a question for how did the juvenile justice system do it. On some level – it's a natural outcome of reducing crime mm-hmm. on the juvenile side. The question is, why hasn't the adult system done it? And I think uh, we can't point a lot. I mean, we, we can certainly dive into what are the policy decisions that are driving this, but we know that there are two determinants of an adult prison population. It's how many people come in the front door and how long do they stay, mm-hmm. and both of those are determined by policy. That mm-hmm. policy can be statute, you know, what are, what's written in the laws. It can be policy uh, on the sense of administrative uh, policy of a Department of Corrections and awarding earn time or of a parole board and deciding who to release and when. Uh, it can be policy about probation and parole and who gets revoked for how long and under what conditions. Um, and so, and then there's practice, of course, which is you may have great policies on the books, but are people actually implementing them the way they were meant to be implemented? Right. And I think in all those cases, we can point to areas on the adult criminal justice system where the intent to uh, use incarceration in the most economical way, focus on the most chronic violent offenders, mm-hmm. uh, and find more cost-effective approaches for the lower-level uh, offenders that re- that better reduce recidivism have not been pursued. Is it fair to say that throughout the country, and we're talking about you know f- 50 states and seven territories, is there a sense through osmosis, through some sort of unwritten contract that everybody seems, or most people seem to be saying, let's take risks at on the juvenile justice side that we may not want to take on the adult side. Let's be a bit more amenable to change, fundamental uh, systematic change on the juvenile justice side. Going back to the reasons for why we have a separate juvenile justice system to begin with in this country, I think there's certainly something to that. People view juveniles uh, differently than they view adults. Um, But I think uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say 
people are more prone to um, uh, second chances or leniency on the juvenile side. I think it's really the, the what's motivating at the state level right now is a question of how do we get the best return on investment right. in terms of public safety, in terms of recidivism. And that's been Pew's motto from the very beginning, how to get the best returns on investment. Well, I think it, it's our motto because it reflects the discussion going on at the state level. We're more than halfway through the program. Jake Horowitz is the policy director for the Public Safety Performance Project at the Pew Charitable Trust. Uh, Pew has just had an amazing history in terms of involvement in the criminal justice system. And as far as I'm concerned, one of the leading entities, yes, there are a lot of them out there, but I think Pew has taken the lead um, over all of us who are looking at change within the criminal justice system. Um, I didn't write this down first. Uh, before the program, Jake, www.pewtrust.org. Pewtrust.org. So, uh, again, an amazing uh, amount of data there, original research coming out of Pew, talking about uh, what's happening both on the juvenile justice side and on the adult side. All right, so... There has been less of an emphasis on separation slash incarceration slash institutionalization on the juvenile justice side. What do you think we've gotten as a result of that? Are we safer? What What is the state of the art in terms of juvenile justice? And we've implemented lots of programs concurrently to try to focus on juvenile justice, programs that the juvenile justice system has had for decades that we don't have in the adult system. Interestingly enough, I find the amount of money spent on juveniles uh, to be five times that in some cases and what we spend on the adult system. So we've done all of this and focused on programs and use of alternatives, and that meant what? What has come from all that? So um, let's see, there's a bunch of ways we could cut this question up. Um, I think one of the one way of looking at it is state policymakers are looking to make investments. They make investments through policy choices and through appropriations, right? Because that determines where the youth go and what services and supervision and sanctions they receive. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things that uh, I think this reflects about states is that they've actually um, really absorbed some of the research on this front. And Mm -hmm. so part of the question is, um, you know, people might ask, wait, you're saying the commitment rate went down and crime went down? Mm -hmm. How how are those two things reconcilable? Right. And what the research says here is actually really uh, quite powerful, which is that um, by and large, lengthy out-of-home placements – and residential facilities fail uh, to produce better outcomes than non-custodial sanctions. This catches people by surprise. They think, wait, of course a kid is going to be deterred by an out-of-home sanction. Of course uh, it's going to reduce their risk uh, of recidivism. There's a, this, is, this is why it pays to invest in research. There is a, um, a study called Pathways to Desistance mm-hmm. that studied is the, is the largest longitudinal study of serious adolescent offending mm-hmm. uh, ever. Mm-hmm. It follows more than a thousand kids for more than seven years uh, in Maricopa County, which is Phoenix, and Philadelphia County, which is Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And what they found after controlling for a host of variables, in fact, more than five dozen variables, is that putting a kid in a residential facility does not reduce the likelihood they recidivate. It further found that the length of stay doesn't matter. Holding a kid six months versus nine months versus 12 months has no effect on future recidivism. And so what that shows you is that we can make modifications in our use of -of out-of-home residential placement without affecting recidivism and public safety. Mm -hmm. It also really points to the issue of opportunity costs. We haven't touched on this yet, but another difference between the adult system and the juvenile system is that the adult system costs about $25,000 to $30,000 per person per year for Mm -hmm. incarceration. Juvenile system, it's more like $80,000. And in several states, it's $150,000 to $200,000 
per youth per year. Big difference because the focus there is on programmatic activity. Programmatic and staffing levels are low, so it's a right. higher ratio of – sorry, I don't mean staffing levels are low. The, the, the ratio of youth to staff is lower. Okay. Uh, yes. and, and there are a bunch of other costs, so the facilities tend to be smaller. A bunch of um, uh, more specific reasons. But the point is there's huge opportunity costs mm-hmm. with residential placement. So the, the more money we're spending on these deep end facilities, that's the less money we're spending for the things you were alluding to earlier, which are the things that actually reduce recidivism. Mm. And so you can turn to resources like um, the Pew MacArthur Results First Initiative or the Washington State Institute for Public Policy and take a look at their rating of programs based on does it reduce recidivism and what's uh, the benefit to cost ratio on these programs. Mm-hmm. And you can point to programs from functional family therapy to multisystemic therapy, a lot of cognitive behavioral uh, type interventions, and say these work, they're cost beneficial, they reduce recidivism, and we shouldn't be putting our money in some of the programs that don't work. Summarize that for me. So I understand that scared straight programs do not work. I understand that boot camp programs do not work. Uh, but again, you're saying for the non-criminal justice uh, people out there, cognitive behavioral therapy. Give me a sense as to, can you summarize it in a layman-esque way as to what does work on the juvenile justice side? Yeah. I mean, eventually it begins with focus your resources where they'll matter. So pay attention to risk and needs. So okay. what this means is we need, we need to understand whether or not a, a juvenile before us presents a high risk of recidivism or a low risk. Right. And we need to focus our resources on the high risk. Assess the risk. And if you once you figure out the person is high risk or medium risk, what do you do with that person that's effective? So then, uh, you know, what basically cognitive behavioral therapy tends to focus on is a- a- asking the youth in what what conditions are they triggered to do uh, the kind of delinquent or criminal behaviors that have gotten them in trouble in the Decision first place? Decision making. Decision making, um, uh, perception of risk. Okay. Um, um, overall social and emotional development, um, understanding um, the, the different peer groups that they get in trouble with and don't get in trouble with. Is that the heart and soul of it, or is it a, is it a, um, um, if is there a drug treatment component? Is there a mental health component? There's certainly you know uh, drug treatment, mental health, employment, education are a big part of all this family strength things like that. Um, but what they the, the highest risk factors are usually antisocial thinking and antisocial behaviors. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily whether or not the kids in school, oftentimes when the kids in school is triggered by whether or not they have antisocial anti, um, uh, or, or negative peer groups, yeah. and that's what leads to that. So you want to address some of the underlying reasons that they're getting in trouble. So we've been able to show that if you don't necessarily have to rely on, you don't have to necessarily rely upon incarceration, removal, whatever we're going to call it, and if you focus on programs, you can lower the rate of recidivism. That's right. Another By thing, how much? So, uh, you know, you take a look at these programs and you tend to see recidivism reductions on the order of 10 to 30 percent. Okay. So it's not much different from the adult system where it's basically 10 to 20 percent. Not not massively different. Okay. The one big difference is that a lot of youth desist on their own. If you've ever looked at these age crime curves, which show how many arrests does a, a typical, you know, typical person pick up every year of their life, mm-hmm. that peaks around 18 or 19 years old. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, if you don't do anything with them, even if they're getting into some trouble as a 16 or 17-year-old, will desist on their own. You don't need an intervention. I'm that, told, that's different from the 30 or 40-year-olds. I, I wasn't going to go here, but I'm told years ago um, that the average person who comes into contact with the criminal justice system does not remain in the criminal justice system, that we never hear from them again. So, in other words, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds can do something incredibly stupid or l- l- illegal and harmful, but the odds are that they may not come into contact or will not come into contact with the criminal justice system ever again. Is that true? Yeah, it's absolutely the case. I think we see um, a lot of people, the, the, the 
folks who are released from prison and it's their first time going to prison have a much lower recidivism rate than the people who have been there before. Mm-hmm. Uh, ditto on the juvenile justice system. There's always a, a first interaction for someone who's in the system. Oftentimes those folks have much lower uh, risk of recidivating. So the fundamental issue here is sort of similar to the adult system. Be careful as to how much you intervene because you may end up doing more harm than good. I'm so glad you raised that. So the same study that I mentioned earlier, Pathways to Desistance, found that um, for the lowest risk youth who were removed from their homes and put in these facilities, the, the intervention, the, 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 the placement uh, in an institution actually increased the risk of recidivism. Same from a study of the Reclaim Initiative in Ohio that found that for low and moderate risk youth who were placed out of home actually increased the risk of recidivism versus a non-custodial sanction. Uh, and so um, one of the sort of most humbling um, findings from a lot of this research is that we should be really careful about intervening in the lives of youth uh, lest we do harm. There's no national stats on recidivism as there is in the adult system. There's no na- there are no national statistics on the juvenile justice side as to as to how often they recidivate, how often they come back to the criminal justice system. That's right. The data sets on the juvenile side tend to be more fractured, so we don't have a national figure. Working at the state level, we've seen figures anywhere from 50 to 75 percent of youth are either re-adjudicated uh, or reincarcerated within three years of mm-hmm. release. Well, that's a very high number. Really high number. It's stubbornly high. Um, folks are asking, wait, we're spending a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars per kid per year and we're getting a 50 75 percent recidivism rate there's got to be a better alternative okay so so but, but you you go into the opposite side of that argument and people are saying well if you're spending that much money and again it's not like i know a lot about the juvenile justice system but i know that we that the juvenile justice system spends far more on their system than we do on the adult side mm-hmm. uh wish it wasn't that way but it is um if we're getting that sort of return then isn't there an, an inevitable frustration and a questioning as to the programmatic initiatives if it's going to be if we're spending that amount of money and our recidivism rate is that high somewhat comparable to the stats on the adult side people are going to sit there and go well why spend that much money Right. Well, I think and, and the, the way to find dollars if you want to spend them in a different way is through reducing the use of out-of-home placement. Mm-hmm. Again, you, you, could, you could spend $80,000 per bed per year or you could move that into a, a continuum of supervision, services, and sanctions at the community level, which research shows will reduce recidivism. So, And one of the tricks here, this is actually you know, one of the questions is, well, if we know the research says to do this, why, why aren't we more naturally moving in that direction? There's plenty of evidence that we have moved in that direction. Those were the national trends we began with. But there's also there, – there's some in, there's some um, uh, inefficiencies baked into the system in the way that um, jurisdictions are aligned and funded. So mm-hmm. one and, – and you see this on the adult side. But juveniles are adjudicated and disposed of at the county level generally through mm-hmm. county-level judges and, and prosecution and defense. Uh, but the state pays the tab – for um, the, the equivalent of juvenile incarceration. Yeah. Right. And, and there's a perversity in this, right? And, and it's not just that um, from the local or county perspective that um, out-of-home placement is subsidized by the state. It's more that if I want to keep a kid locally, if I want to provide true supervision, real services in my community, particularly mm-hmm. if I'm a rural area or a, a, a non-urban area of the state, mm-hmm. the money doesn't follow the kid. Right. So I might choose, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to th- – I don't think this kid belongs in one of those facilities, but I'd like to keep him locally, but there's nothing locally. Uh, and if I keep him locally, no money is going to follow. Uh, that's a really – that's a bad incentive. In fact, when you talk to the stakeholders in the system, whether or not they be judges or prosecuting attorneys, one thing you hear consistently is I'm not sure this kid needed to be removed from home and put in a facility, mm-hmm. but there was not a viable alternative where I live. And what they're saying is it's either slap on the wrist nothing, you know, deferred adjudication or deferred prosecution, or I send them 
to a state facility, and there's nothing in between. I want to begin to close out the program because we're running out of time. So Pew, the Public Safety Performance Project, um, Adam Gelb at the adult level, you at the juvenile justice level. Um, In essence, you're going in, working with states, working with counties, analyzing data. It's a data-driven process, talking to stakeholders, figuring out what that jurisdiction wants to do and help them implement those things. And certainly Pew has been a dramatic part of the sense of doing something else with people on the adult side and juvenile justice side in terms of something else besides incarceration. That's the bottom line. Yes, states want this. This is the most important part. I think there's a view that uh, this is an advocate-driven initiative or that that reform in general is, is some, you know, and there's certainly this case. I mean, that has happened. There are folks who want this, who who are, uh, are pushing for elected officials to to move in this direction. But I think it's what's just as remarkable, and maybe more remarkable, is that state leaders and federal leaders now we see up on uh, Capitol Hill and in mm-hmm. the administration want to move these reforms forward. So what we see happening at the state level, to, to play out a, an example here, is that a governor, a chief justice, a speaker, or senate president of the state legislature will say. I'm looking for an issue uh, that I believe in. Here's an issue many of my constituents are bringing to me. I may have come out of the system myself in the sense that many of these elected officials previously worked in the criminal justice system as prosecutors or as judges. Volunteered their own time. uh, Mentored a youth. Many of these, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, take the the governor of Georgia's former um, judge and his uh, um, and. A family of folks who come out of the criminal justice system uh, as, um, working But they're professionally. all asking themselves, why are we spending all this money and, and not getting the result? We need to get better results, and that's where they bring in Pew and, and allied organizations. They're asking that question, and then they're forming a bipartisan interbranch work group to tackle these issues. They ask for our assistance to help run the numbers and analyze the system. They bring in leaders from other states and researchers to tell them about what works and what uh, innovative programs are available. And then they forge consensus, and this is the, this is the impressive part. All these folks are on the table um, representing different stakeholders group saying we can agree on a package of reforms that we prefer over the status quo and we're going to advocate for it in legislation court rule and agency policy and the last thing i'd say here too is the public supports it we've done public opinion polling on this and across the board rsd's independence crime victims law enforcement families say it's not how long a kid spends out of home or even if they're sent out of home it's whether or not we're able to reduce recidivism it's been a fascinating conversation 30 minutes goes by way too fast jake Horowitz is the policy director for the public safety performance project at the pew charitable trust ladies and gentlemen, this is D.C. Public Safety. We appreciate your comments. We even appreciate your criticisms, and we want everybody to have themselves a very, very pleasant day. 